Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello, and welcome to the Neil Before Pod interview segment. I'm your host, Craig, and I recently had the pleasure of chatting to actor Aaron Douglas, Chief Tyrrell in Battlestar Galactica, The Turtle in the Flash, and Officer Joe Fletcher in Thunderbird, plus much, much more. We talk being in sci fi, drowning in nihilism, and writing comic books. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with Aaron Douglas. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's kind of windy in Scotland, but it is what it is. Where are you in Scotland? Edinburgh. Oh, I love Edinburgh. I love Scotland. I'm a Douglas, so my family's from there. The hair stands up on my arms when I go up to Scotland. It's all the ancestors in me. Very cool. Where are you just now? North Vancouver. Cool. And for listeners, it's outdoorsy. It looks very pleasant over where you are at the moment. Yeah, I live in a rainforest on the outskirts of Vancouver. I'm about 25 minutes from downtown, so I got surrounded by green space, and this is my garden, and I try and be outside as much as I can. As we said before we started recording, when you live in a place where it rains a lot, when it's not raining, you try and go outside and get the last bit of cloud, as Carl Pinkington would say. Get that vitamin D. Exactly. That's exactly (laughs) it. So just take it back to the beginning for the first question. How did you get your start in the industry? What prompted you to pursue your career path? Oh, wow. I haven't gotten this question in a long time. I always did theater in high school, but I played hockey as well. And I saw myself more of that. I finished high school. I was going to go to university and be a lawyer. And that didn't work out, which is great because they sit at their desk all day or they stand around. I always thought that the lawyer was the guy who ran around in the courtroom screaming at people and (laughs) you're on order. I thought it was Al Pacino for a man justice for all. That's what I wanted to be. <laughs> I was working for a sports nutrition company like in my late 20s. And I was helping people with their diets, which is funny because I have a terrible diet now. But I spoke to a guy who was an actor and I said, oh, yeah, I, I used to do that in high school and stuff. And he said, well, I do the scene study class. You should check it out. So I checked that out. And then I just started taking the class. And the guy who ran the school, actually the school, I'm sure some of your listeners watched the original X-Files, The Smoking Man, William Davis. It was his school that I went to. Mm -hmm. And they had a full-time class that ran September to May each year. And people auditioned from all over the world. Lucy Lawless went there years before me. And they said, people audition, but we'll hold you a spot if you'd like to go. So I said, all right. And I quit my job and I got a student loan. And at the end of the school year, one of the teachers recommended me to her agent and I got an agent. And then I just been very fortunate, started booking things and it's gone well for me so far. So it was a bit of a risk, but it was a risk that paid off. Yeah, I was in my late 20s and I have no discernible other skills. I seem to be moderately okay at this. So why not give it a go? Give it a goo. And you've turned up on a lot of sort of sci-fi fantasy TV. Has that just been the way it's went, or is that a particular interest of yours that you like to be involved in? That's mostly because that's what they film in Vancouver. Sci-fi is kind of what they do in Vancouver. So if you're a Vancouver actor, you're going to wind up on a sci-fi show because that's typically just what happens. You don't see Vancouver actors showing up on a lot of sitcoms because... They get filmed in L.A. and we're in Vancouver and that's just how that goes. So that's the reason for being on sci-fi. It's more of an opportunity than anything else. Fair enough. So one of the early things I would have noticed, Jim, would have been Smallville, where you were in a character in one of the earlier seasons and then you turned up in the later seasons post-Battlestar. So what was it like coming back to a show like that, playing a completely different character after so many years? Yeah, that was a fun show to do, particularly in the later year when I returned. It's jumping on a moving train. When you're going onto a show that's been going for years and years, they're a well-oiled machine and the crew knows what they're doing and the cast knows what they're doing. And you really just need to hit your mark and say your lines and get the hell out of there. But they are also supportive and lovely people that it was an easy thing. And Tom was just a great guy. So it's not really 
that difficult. It's like going on to Supernatural and Jared and Jensen are just such great dudes. And we know each other from the con circuit and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit of an old home week sort of thing, <laughs> if that makes any sense. But yeah, you know that you're on their show, but still they're not lording it over you and being a dink about it. Plus you got to torture Tom Welling, so that must have been something. Yes, that's always fun. It's like when I got <laughs> to slap Chris Judge in Stargate. That's one of my highlights. That was a, a peak <laughs> moment. I got to fight The Rock in a movie and just lots of lots of good stuff. <laughs> and was being on Smallville connected to how you ended up on Hellcats because Tom Welling was involved in that show or his production oh, company was? I don't know. I think that's probably more just happenstance than anything. I'd be curious to see if it was the same casting director because there's a few casting directors in town that I'm very blessed. They hire me for anything that they can because they like my work. So that might have had something to do with it. Or who knows? Producers over there said, oh, I know this guy. We've had him before. That happens a lot too. Producers, if they know you and they know that they can trust you, they'll tell the people who are making the decisions, yeah, yeah, I've hired this guy before and he's good and he doesn't cost us any time or money. So yeah, feel free to grab him. I guess that's how the delivery demon cameo and Reaper happened because it was just that one moment where you delivered a really big contract and you had to fill out the, yeah. the, the form. <laughs> yeah, that was because they were Battlestar fans. That's happened quite a few times, which is very, very cool. Last fall, I did Are You Afraid of the Dark? And the producers were big Battlestar fans. They went, we can get Chief from Battlestar. They didn't even want me. They wanted Chief from Battlestar. <laughs> so I was very happy to go do that. Battlestar's still getting you work after all these years. That's good to hear. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly enough. Yeah. I'm writing comic books now and, and it's mostly based on that they're Battlestar nerd fans. So very cool. I too am a Battlestar nerd fan. So it all works <laughs> out. Me too. I was obsessed with the show when it was on. I thought it was among the best things on television at the time. And it was a good show. It was, was hooked. Because I got into it as it was in its second season. So I made my way through the first season in like two days mm -hmm. and then got caught up on season two very quickly. And then it was just week on week after that. Beautiful. But the, the Battlestar set must have been amazing. It was this, this massive, broken down, grimy, lived in universe. I mean, then you were in control, probably one of the bigger sets on the ship. Yeah. What was interesting is when we did the miniseries, we filmed it over at Lionsgate Studios, which is in North Van. They're, they're now North Shore Studios, I believe. Anyway, they were Lionsgate back then. But they had this one massive stage, and that was the CIC, all the hallways. So if you notice the beginning of the miniseries, there's the scene where Katie's just jogging around and jogging around and the camera's moving. That's one big, long shot. They could do that because the CIC was connected to all the hallways and then connected to all the quarters and the lounges and all that kind of stuff. And then the hangar deck was a separate stage. And then we had another stage for smaller things. But when we moved over to Vancouver Film Studios, the stages are a little bit smaller, so they couldn't fit the CIC and all the hallways and all the rooms. So they sort of chopped the ship up into... I think we had four or five stages over there. Hangar deck was one, CIC was another with some hallways and then more hallways and pilot quarters and officer quarters and enlisted quarters on another stage. And then the Cylon ship was another stage. Yeah, we owned half that lot. It was very cool. It was always impressive because the set design just felt, this is old, it's lived in, it's a bit broken. It's, you know, oh, your it's characters crazy. keeping it all together kind of thing. So that must've been really amazing to just own that space, I guess. Absolutely. Our construction people were unbelievable. Well, the designers to start and then the carpenters and the craftspeople to build it and to 
dress it down. The difference between, if you look at the Starship Enterprise and the Battlestar Galactica, they're both similar kind of things. One's purely a warship and one's not entirely a warship, but it also is. But it's pristine, it's clean, it's beautiful. Like if somebody scuffed a wall, they'd have a crew and they'd go paint it out or whatever. Our show was, yeah, this thing is old. It's a car from the 60s and it barely runs. Backfires every once in a while. The people on it are unshaven and unkempt. I always marveled, especially when a new thing would come in. I remember walking onto the hangar deck the first time and I saw the Cylon Raider sitting up on its stilts and there was nobody else around and it was lit because they were going to film some stuff around it. And I just went, holy moly. It was just spectacular to see in person just the size of it and how menacing it was the wings are just two points coming right at you terrifying thing you rarely get to see the craftspeople who put these things together but whenever you do you go holy shit thank you so much because that is outrageous when we did the blackbird episode i went across the street to the construction shed because they built it in stages. We shot that in sequence. So we had like the frame of it. And then they had the next stage where it had some cables and then the next stage where it had more. And then it had the skin. So they had four or five of these things built and they would just wheel it across the street and into the door and we'd film the next day. I went over there to see the different stages and watch them build for an hour or so. And it was remarkable. They're just, they're so talented. These people are unbelievable. The episodes where that was getting built were great. Just the little stages, everybody getting involved. It must be a really good camaraderie moment to film yeah that blackbird episode is one of my favorite episodes of the show yeah that moment at the end of mary and the bottle of champagne and she's gonna smash it over the beak and she freaks (laughs) out that was an ad lib too she was doing what she thought supposed to be done and i reacted as chief in that no it flew (laughs) out of my boots and your character got put through a lot of challenging stuff some brutally brutally dark and intense stuff what was it like preparing to go through the emotional ringer? And was there a lot of levity on set to balance it out because it might drown in your nihilism otherwise? Drown in your nihilism. I love that. Yeah, it it was tough. The writers would always say to me, we like writing for you because we can just pile more shit on the Chief Tyrrell pile and we know that you'll do it. And I think other than Colonel Ty, Colonel Ty and Chief Tyrrell, I think, went through the biggest arc of up and down and screw you and hurt and pain. Beginning of season two, for the first three episodes, one of his people died in his arms every single episode. And that is emotionally and physically exhausting to perform. But you got to do it. Otherwise, it looks false and the show doesn't come off as well. And so I did my best. There was times of levity, but TV moves really quickly. So when you're in the, the heavy emotional stuff, you can't really just fall out of it and then jump right back in two minutes later. So you can't really joke around and then go back into I'm holding the love of my life in my arms as she bleeds out. It doesn't work that way. Your emotions don't really work that way. But we did have, on the opportunities that we could, when it was a little bit lighter, there was a lot of, Michael Truco and I would quote Anchorman ad nauseum. We would drive the crew crazy with our just ribs, bad ribs for lunch. That's why I'm doing this constantly. Family Guy was a big one back then when people were just starting to lose it a little bit. I'd just look right at Nikki Klein and go, I bent my Wookiee. And then she'd fall out laughing or you'd just look down the lens and say something stupid. And then the crew would break up a little bit and then you'd calm down and kind of get back to it. It's just about letting the air out of the balloon before it pops. Because if it pops, then everything goes completely sideways. Yeah, because it was very dark. It dealt with a lot of dark themes and and very intense character stuff. Yeah, we weren't making Seinfeld. That's for sure. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) 
And what was it Edward James almost like as a lead? He seems quite intense, certainly in the Adama role, but I've always heard that he can turn it off and be very, be very calm and commanding in his own way. Yeah, it's because it's who he is. He was dad and Mary was mom. Always more afraid of Mary. I love Mary, sister, a mother, of whatever you want to call her. She was the one that you never wanted to get the point. The long <laughs> finger that comes at you, hey, that's enough. You get the disappointed mom head shake, like, okay, got to calm down. But then also, Mary had the ability to ruin an hour of filming because she'd get the giggles, and that would be it. You'd be crying. There was an episode... We were down on a planet and it was myself and Paul Campbell and Mary was telling us that she's taking her family to the racetrack that weekend and she had never been before. And is there anything that she should learn about betting on the ponies? <laughs> well, Paul and I, Paul is one of the funniest men on the planet. Paul and I started picking horse names that she should not go with because they probably won't win. Like always comes in second. Don't place that to win. That's not going to happen, Mary. By a nose. Wins by a nose. Now, you got to figure out, Mary, which way you put in first and which one you're putting second. So we did this for like 45 minutes. She was going like, stop it, stop it. But she's crying. And the producer finally came up and you two, shut up. You shut up right now. I'm like, okay, sorry. But we giggled and giggled and giggled. Yeah. Mary's like that aunt who comes over at Christmas or whatever and just gets your mom going. And they just start they're giggling in the kitchen, like just obnoxious. And the dads are just in the living room drinking their scotch going, oh, God, enough, ladies. That's Mary. Love Mary. Sounds great. It sounds like it was a lot of fun. She's the best. And the big twist that you ended up being a Cylon, spoilers for a show that ended... Yeah, if you haven't watched a show by now, go <laughs> yeah. frack yourself. Unless yeah, you're exactly. <laughs> how much notice did you get of that twist? And how did you feel about that being added to your character? They officially told us the day before we started filming that, which was in December. Oh, wow. And in September, I was over at Michael Reimer's house and I came upon some papers that I wasn't supposed to look at, but I did anyways. And it was the outline from like episode 11 to the end of season three. And I just went through them looking for chief stuff just to see what they had in store for my character. And then I came upon this and I found that out and Michael Reimer caught me and told me, you can't say anything. And I'm like, I can't keep this a secret for four months. And he said, you have to. <laughs> so I kept it a secret and didn't tell Michael, Michael or Reka. And then they officially told us at the read through the day before we started filming that episode, Hogan was not happy in the slightest. Truco didn't quite know what to make of it. Reka was like, what? What's, I don't understand. I love Rika. And I didn't like it at first. I thought you're taking a character that the fans love and you're going to make him a character that the fans potentially will turn on. Not realizing that they know exactly what the hell they're doing and I should just shut up and say my words. I got a hold of Ron Moore, yelled at him for a few minutes and then he talked me off the ledge and we had a really nice, long, great talk, which is the great thing about Ron. His door was always open. Amazing man. And he's just said, look, if you trusted us so far, just keep trusting us. And of course he was absolutely right in every sense of right so i am now thrilled the chief turned out to be one of the final five i think it's an amazing piece of television history and there was that big thing where it's, does that mean his kid is half silent as well there was another one that's oh never mind it's not his it's that's yeah, not his we, kid. we yeah. don't have to deal with that <laughs> dirty hot dog and his hot dog because <laughs> i remember thinking that at the time it's like hang on there's another half silent over here that we're not addressing and then oh that was a big talk later. on the set yeah yeah we were talking about that on set because we hadn't seen the next script we didn't know what the hell was going on and then it came out and we figured oh okay that makes sense because it's supposed to be one true child and like well, wait a second i thought that was Hilo and boomer like or Hilo and athena or whatever i don't know whichever one he was nailing that week <laughs> 
And have you kept anything as a memento from the set? Did you take something when they were tearing it down? Officially, no. Unofficially, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. If I could have taken a Viper and dragged it home behind my Volvo, I would have <laughs> and put it in the carport because I thought that would have been really cool to scare the hell out of the paper kid when he comes by to drop off a newspaper and you just turn it on and it starts shaking. Ron told the studio and the network that I'm letting everybody take one costume. So I took two. You know, there was little props. I wish that I had gone through that thing and just filled a suitcase every time I was on set with props and little things because, man, it's so cool. Every once in a while, somebody will come by a convention and bring it up to my table. This is a prop that I bought from the show and this was in the hangar deck and I literally know exactly where it was on the hangar deck and how many times I picked it up and used it. And it's a cool thing. I wish I had half the hangar deck in my basement around my pool table. I think that would be just an <laughs> outstanding bar, like chief's bar. And it's got hangar deck stuff all over it. I thought that would be great. As long as you don't try to take that model that Edward James almost broke, that was very expensive. Oh yeah. That wasn't written. Don't smash that dummy. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Another big show you were in that, was very well regarded was the killing and that was another intense thing so what was it like working on that and going through that well, another big intense project that show was dark as shit huh well hugh and i have become great friends since that show he's an amazing guy you talk about an intense dude that dude's intense but in the best possible way and peter was so good so unbelievably professional and it was weird he lived in new york and you'd get on a plane and he'd fly overnight and he'd get off the plane and they'd drive him to set and he'd work all day. And then he'd go back to the airport and jump on a plane and go back to New York. It was like, what? I get up and I have to drive a half an hour from my house and I'm going, oh man, the commute. <laughs> he just flew six and six and a half hours plus customs and security and all that. Anyways, brilliant actor. We had some great directors come through. And I remember one episode was directed by Ed Bianchi who directed the pilot of and a bunch of episodes of Deadwood, which is my favorite TV show of all time. And I remember fanboying until I finally got up enough nerve and I went, Ed, I'm sorry, I got to do it. But Deadwood's the greatest show in the history of TV. And he just sat back and smiled. And he goes, yeah, that was pretty good, wasn't it? And then we just talked Deadwood for the rest of the day. And it was a really cool experience. But The Killing is a dark show, man. I haven't watched it. Just it's not my thing that long slow oppressive there's no relief at least Battlestar they'd give you an episode where somebody does something stupid and you can have a little bit of a giggle but there's nothing in the killing to break the mood you need to watch one episode of the killing and then six episodes of Bob's Burgers and then one episode of the killing and yeah it's it's an oppressive show for sure but it was a treat to work on and I'm thrilled to have been a part of it I was very honored to to get the call to say, will you come and do this character? You were happy enough just to play it and then not have to watch it because it would be too difficult. <laughs> yeah, when you're literally hanging a guy. <laughs> it's a weird thing. But you have done some lighthearted stuff. The Flash, for example, where you're quite a memorable oh, villain. Yeah. The Turtle, or just the Turtle. Turtle. So we're shooting that a lot of you walking around while everyone pretended they were standing still. Yeah, that's exactly it. Trying to explain to like 45 extras. Okay, now when I say don't move, you can't move and then in the middle of the take somebody would just turn their head and like no you can't move at all freeze 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 so that's always an interesting thing but yeah it was that it was everybody freeze Aaron walk across the room and everybody back out but yeah it was that was great I mean that cast everybody's so great they are all really really 
lovely, sweet, kind people. Hey, welcome to the show. And sometimes you get on these shows and they're a little bit younger and they're sort of tasting fame for the first time and they can just be pain in the ass. But none of them were. They were absolutely lovely, delightful people. And it was a, it was a great experience. I just wish that they had brought them back in an alternate universe so I could be more turtly. You got two appearances, which is one more than most get on that show. Fair. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you got to be Cisco's nemesis for a while. Yep. So that was yep. something. Yeah. Not to be sniffed at. No, no, not at all. The Flash is a show that I, I really enjoy. I review it and have done since day one, so I really enjoy it. So, oh, and I like your turn as Turtle. I think he was a fun villain. I like the gimmick of sapping all the kinetic energy and watching Barry try to run towards you and stuff. So that must have looked yeah. ridiculous when filming, him trying to like run and not being able to. Well, his slow motion run was always enjoyable to watch. I like that, <laughs> which was good. And then when he finally does connect with the turtle and he bangs him off into that wall, I snuck down with my phone and I filmed, it's a stunt guy named Dave. Dave's the best. He doubles me a lot. And I thought, I'd like to try this. I'd like to try this. And then I saw the take and I went, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. The ratchet, the pull, the smash into the wall. But I filmed it and then I just show people and I say, yeah, that's me. I did that. I did that. (laughs) Not a chance. So stunts aren't your thing then? Oh, I love to do them. I love to try them. There was a high fall on Battlestar where Chief in the dream sequence jumps off the upper deck down into the bag below. It wasn't a bag though, but he was diving off to kill himself in the hangar deck. And Mm -hmm. I got up there and I started climbing the railing and they were grabbing me going, no, you can't do it. You can't do it. The insurance would never, ever let you do that. Try it. Try it once. I was younger and dumb back then. Dumb now, but I'm older, but at least I'm smart enough to not try high falls and stuff like that. Yeah, I'll do what I can, but give a stunt guy a day. Let him make some money. Yeah, that's what they get paid for. That's what they train for. So, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. On things like The Flash, the stunts are always very impressive. They're always trying really cool stuff. And they're mostly practical, too. Those stunt people are really actually doing the thing and flying and getting ratcheted and falls and the fights. Yeah, it's an impressive thing to watch when you're on set. It's like, hey, Aaron, you're done. We're just going to do the stunt now. I'm not going home. I'm not going to watch this. It's impressive. These people are badass. And another show of yours I watched was The Returns, where people just kept coming back from the dead for some reason. Well, I know the reason because I've seen the show, but yeah, that must yeah. have been quite an interesting one. And it's not the only sort of zombie-ish show you've been on. iZombie, of course, as well. So both shows that I enjoyed. Well, iZombie was great fun because that character was just such a jerk. But it's fun to play guys like that that are just right-wing conspiracy, complete asshole. It's great fun. The Returns was great Carlton Cuse, who created that executive producer, lovely man, and gave me that job. I'll be forever grateful for that. I really liked that show, and I really liked the premise. I was disappointed that it went away, because I really thought that it could have gone somewhere with it, for sure. It was a good show to do. I was playing a bit of a different character, and a friend of mine watched it, and she's like, boy, you're acting. At first, I thought what is he doing? His acting is really... And then she said, oh, and then I realized that you were mentally deficient. You were mentally handicapped. Okay, that made sense. At first, I thought you were just bad acting. Like, oh, great, <laughs> thanks. It's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's feedback, if nothing else. <laughs> oh, there's some feedback right there, yeah. I was so good that she just literally believed it. What's it like preparing to do that kind of role where you know, someone might have a mental issue or something like that? What kind of research do you do to get in that mindset. My father taught at the university for 35 years or whatever. He taught social work and human service worker programs. So he taught people to work with people with mental and physical disabilities. 
And my youngest brother has autism. So I grew up around people with disabilities. So it wasn't too hard to just pick a couple of guys from my past and just sort of channel them. A bit of an homage to a couple of fellows that I squished together. And it'd be good to have that experience because then you can do a, a true portrayal, an experience portrayal rather than trying to get there from scratch. Trying to make it up. Yeah. I always try to get it as right as I possibly can. Don't always succeed, but I aim for it. And that's all we can do at the end of the day is try our best and exactly. do the work, put the work in exactly. and all that stuff. So the film Thunderbird is what you're in. Well, it came out a couple of years ago, actually. It was doing the festival circuit a couple of years ago, but I only saw it a few days ago. So for me, it's new. Your character in that is, is someone who very much knows his job, knows how the world really is or how he thinks the world really is. And it's kind of accepted that it's not getting better. So again, another bit of nihilism for you to sink your teeth into. But was that your take on the character as well? Or have I misread him completely? No, I think you nailed it. My take is he's a small town cop and this is just the way it is. And it's not going to change. In his mind, it's not going to change because nobody takes the actions that are required to actually create the change so it is what it is because this is the way it is and steeped in racism and all that kind of stuff i think it's more of a real reflection on the conversation and the argument that's continually had she has her point of view and he has his and perhaps it's somewhere in the middle but i think it's more close to hers and if we all acted like her the world would certainly be a better place than the guy who's just like yeah you know what i've been doing this job for so long it's not going to change and this is what it is i kind of like that because she had that almost youthful optimism and you were just fed up he was just fed up he was just running out the clock on the job totally he was hurt 20 years ago or 25 years ago he's like you know i remember when i was a cockeyed optimist but welcome to the real world lady shit happens <laughs> was that based on any particular cop that you might have known or in any other show or anything like no, that? No, I basically just... just channeled a bunch of the fellas down at my local pub. Just the, the old racist bastards who sit around the bar and complain about <laughs> fucking everything. You just go, okay, it's all right. This is easy. I understand all this dialogue because I've heard it at the pub again and again and again. Totally. I totally get who this guy is. Yeah. He's a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. Just stuck in his ways. Just stuck yeah. in his opinions, not willing to change them. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Those people you talk to and you just sort of nod along until the conversation ends, because otherwise it'll never end. <laughs> exactly. Really good film. And I thought it looked amazing. I mean, that location must yeah. be amazing to film in. Yeah, that was my thing. It was the look of it, the pacing of it. It felt sort of like a, a more brightly lit killing. That mm. long, slow tracking shots, the long scenes where there's not a lot of dialogue, but there's a lot going on. I, I enjoyed that. I thought Nicholas did a great job directing and finding all of those moments and everything that happens when people aren't speaking. They're just breathing at each other. I spoke to him the other day, actually, about the film, and he talked about just how great the location was and how there was problems every day because it's outdoor shooting, but it all contributed. Outdoor shooting. It's an indie film. You've got people that are doing jobs that are probably up a couple rungs on the ladder from what they should be doing or have the ability to do, but they're figuring it out on the fly as best they can. Yeah, it doesn't look like an indie film at all. I thought they did a really good job of making it look like a proper film. Well, it is a proper film, but it's just indie films can look a little college made. I think he did a great job. The DP, the producers, everybody, yeah. Yeah, filming out in the woods. Filming out in Vancouver in the daytime when you're up in the woods, it's, it's gorgeous. You get the sun coming through the trees of the angles and the green is so lush. 
if you can get some blue sky, you're good, but it's mostly gray skies. So it can get very cold, I imagine. All those filming days on Battlestar out in the woods, just getting rained on and whatever. <laughs> it's cold, but it's not like Calgary cold. We don't get freezing, freezing in Vancouver. We're more like San Francisco. It gets rainy and shitty, but it's not going to snow on you and it's not going to get 20 below and 30 below and just destroy you. These are real first world problems we're having here. Oh, you're on a film set and you're a little chilly? Okay. Go to your tent and warm up. <laughs> you're filming one of the biggest hit shows in the world right now, but you're cold. Okay, <laughs> whatever. <Yeah. laughs> At least you're aware of the fact that you're grateful for being a part of these things. That's half of it, isn't it? Oh, I'm absolutely blessed, incredibly blessed to have been a part of the things that I've been a part of. And I'm so thankful for all the things that I get to do, the people I get to meet and the places I get to go and the people I get to work with. So it's been a great honor so far. I hope it continues. I hope so too. I always like it when you show up in things and you show up in a lot of the things I watch. So it's just keeps happening. Perfect. Yeah. Works for me. <laughs> awesome. So what's next for you? What projects have you got coming up that you can talk about? Obviously I'm not going to ask you to break any embargoes. The big thing that I'm doing right now, mostly I don't have any filming projects. Well, I have one that they've reached out to my agents, but I haven't heard anything. So I don't know what's going on with that, but I'm writing a lot. I write, comic books for Aftershock Comics in the U.S. And I've got a comic book coming out in September. It's my first full-length standalone comic. Order your 44 pages. I don't know if we've completely landed on it yet. It's called 10 Years to Death, and it's a story from my childhood about a night when I heard my uncle come home freaked out in the middle of the night and sat with my dad and uh, reluctantly told him the story of what happened at the prison where he worked that evening and swore my dad to secrecy. And they didn't know that I was sitting at the top of the stairs at, I want to say eight years old, listening to the whole thing. And it scarred me for life. And so now <laughs> I've written it down because Joe Pruitt, one of the head guys at Aftershock loves the story. So we're doing that. And I've now begun work on a feature script for it because the film people over at Aftershock really think that it would make a really cool movie. So uh, I'm writing that and I've got two or three other writing projects that I'm working on as well. So that sort of is what fills up my day. Oh. Walk the dog and slam away on my laptop. I was writing something, whether it be comics or features or anything else, was that something you were always interested in pursuing or was it something that you came to a bit later and how did you come to it? I think it sort of happened somewhere around while we were doing Battlestar. I would find myself when we would do a cast dinner with whatever producers, writers, directors happened to be in town, find myself sitting at the writer's end, listening to them and listening to the directors and then talking about how they're putting things together and the direction and how they create and craft. And I would just always ask questions about character and how do you build character and, and how do you see the scene and what's your point of view when you write? And then I just started writing things, not even to show anybody, just a story would come into my head and I'd just write it down. And then years later, some people approached me and asked me if I would write a short story for an anthology series that they were putting out with other proper authors. And I said, sure. And I wrote one and I sent it to them and they loved it and they included it. And then we did another one and they did another book and asked for another story. So I did another one. <laughs> and then I just started writing and an idea would come to my head and I'd either write it as a short story or I'd write a script or whatever. And then when I met Joe, like oh, man, four or five years ago, I guess, started talking to him about what do you do oh you work in comics cool and then I just started telling him stories which is what I like to do and so he 
reached out to me and he said, can we consider writing that and we'll make a comic out of it? And Okay. So I've done three short stories for their anthology books, Shock, Volume 1, Volume 2, and Save Our Shops, which is a thing that came out last year. And I'm in there with like Neil Gaiman and real proper writers and artists. So it's a standing on the shoulders of giants moment for me. But they wanted to use that as a launching pad for me for writing for them. And then this latest one is my first standalone, which is really cool. I'm excited about it. The artist is Cliff Richards in Brazil, and it's creepy because he writes what's in my head. I'll type out a scene. I go, I see this over here, and it's this, and the room looks like this, and this, and I send it to him, and it comes back, and it's it's exactly what I envision in my brain. It's weird, and I've never met the guy except for <laughs> via email, but it's very cool, and I love what he's drawn for the book, and it's just being colored right now, and then we have to letter it, and then in September, it'll be out. So you don't see what the thing looks like until a bit later on then, usually? Not compiled. I have the black and white pages from Cliff. And every time they get the colored pages in, they send me over the colored pages because I have to make a note like, can that not be that color green? Can you lighten it up or whatever? But I made a comment because the colorist is unbelievable as well. And then once that's all compiled, then I go back and redo the script for the dialogue that goes in or the narration or whatever. And then that goes off to the letterer and then they put it all together. And then they send me a proof and say, you need to go through this, look for spelling mistakes or stuff that can get adjusted. You can't change the drawing. You can't change the coloring, really, but you can change a little bit of the lettering. And then does it read well? And is it what do you want it to say? And, and then it goes to the printer. So it's a long process, but an interesting one because it's so different than what we do in film and TV. But telling a story is telling a story. It's just a different format. Yeah, I know that from comics that I follow where it's like, we're going to do this story at some point, but we don't know when it'll be out yet. Just at some point, we'll announce it later and... It seems that the planning process is much more fluid than it is for something like TV or, or film where you're trying to get to a specific date. Yeah, the, the date can move in comics for sure. It'll be ready when it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Good luck with that. I think it sounds great. I will check it out once it appears Perfect. In, in September, as you say. So it, it sounds like an interesting story that I want to read and reading it in comic form. Nice. Yeah. So my last question and it's a bit of a fun one to end on, and it'd be something you're very familiar with, actually, but maybe you'll have a different answer. So if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? I know that you had kinetic energy sapping powers and various other things and other things, but this would be you. I'm of two minds. One, I would like the ability to be invisible, or I would like the ability to change anything or anyone into anything or anyone. <laughs> I think that would be cool. If you're getting bothered by some people, there's a bunch of rocks there. Just turn them into barking dogs and chase them off. There's <laughs> something really interesting about that. Never had that one before. I'd like to be able to do that one. That would be cool. There's a vault door at the bank. You just turn it into cream cheese. And just walk right through. Grab what you need. Basic thievery. It's basically what superpowers are. Like, what can I do to steal that? Am I going to help people or am I going to hinder people? <laughs> Those are your two choices. Ah, ah, yeah. yeah, you get to be Robin Hood through your superpowers. I would just be lazy with superpowers. I would just benefit myself, get things done quicker. It was speed that I would choose to have if I could have it, because then I could write quickly, my brain would operate quickly, I could go anywhere instantly. So that'd be me. You'd be like Data with a teleporter then. I don't know. I think I'd like to still see things while I was going, so I'd like to still make the journey. Ah, yeah, there you quickly. go. There you go. So I'm running past it, but I'll still see it. Yeah, Stone Edge. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, okay. There it is. I've seen it now. 
Yeah, but my brain works so fast that I was able to take it all in, so it's fine. Ah, there you go. That's the key. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking to you about all your projects, getting to ask you a few questions about Battlestar. As a huge fan of Battlestar, that's a big win in my column, I think. Great to hear you talk about your time on that show, because it's one I go back to still every now and again, whenever I'm feeling like I'm going to expose myself to something quite grim for a while and I'll watch it over a period. <laughs> but yeah. Wonderful. Good luck with a comic or comics. Good luck with the film based on your comic. Good luck with any filming projects that you have coming up. Just good luck with everything. I hope it all pans out for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. And thank you very much for your time once again. Of course. That was my chat with Aaron Douglas. I wish him all the best with his future projects. If you enjoyed what you heard here, then don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcasting app. Apple users, please leave us a star rating and a comment. If you want to discuss this interview or anything else, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As always, I hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod.